Okay, let's uh, get started this morning with really our final installment in what we've been looking, looking at all summer, which is sanctification, self-governance um, of your own spiritual growth. Looking at, uh, remember we started with Scripture, the Word of God, looking at that series on Sunday morning um, and said the, the Sunday school hour is going to be de- devoted to so what, um, which has developed into a, a theology and a practical outworking of sanctification. As you know, the word sanctification or sanctify and the word holy are the exact same word in the original in um, the New Testament. Uh, Steve, is that you back there? Hey, good to see you. Welcome up. Over. Can we just have a moment for you Kansans? So if you're talking about Hutchinson or Wichita, is, are we up from there or over from there? See, you don't even agree. It's up and over. But do you typically say we're going down to Wichita or over to Wichita? Down? How many say down? How many say over? How many say across the state? How many of you never go to Wichita? There you go. That's, that's, that's the way it works. Anyway, good to see you guys. Uh, good to have you up. We're looking at sanctification, what it means to be holy in response to God. And so what we're going to do this morning, what I'm going to do is give a, a quick overview that kind of pulls some things together, stitches them together in one passage and then um, uh, open it up to you for discussion on anything you want to. And if you don't have questions, Myrl has a ton. And uh, he's uh, always ready and uh, can ask me questions that I don't know the answer to. Then he gets to answer them and look like the trump card. Is that right? Something like that, yeah. Turn to Matthew chapter 22 for a moment. Matthew chapter 22. This is a watershed passage. This is one of those verses that's determinative, that's a first domino in a long uh, string of dominoes, that is summative. It is an important, all-encompassing moment in the teaching of our Lord. Matthew chapter 22, begin in verse 20, in verse 34. Matthew 22, 34. But when the the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a a lawyer. Now, remember, when you see the term lawyer in the New Testament, don't think of an attorney in in our context. Think of a scribe, a a scholar, a theological expert, an expert in the law. So when this theologian, this scholar came and he said, um, asked Jesus a question, testing him, verse 35. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? He was asking for a, a segregation of the law, a prioritization of the law, a list from number one through number 626. What's the greatest? Which one stands above them all? Jesus says to him in verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And before anyone can catch their breath, he says, surprisingly, the second is like it. He was only asked for number one, and he says, actually, I got number one and number two. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
And then verse 40, if you underline things in your Bible, this is an underlinable verse. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. That's the great, what we call the Jesus hermeneutic for the Old Testament. You can look at every commandment in the Old Testament and all of those commandments break down into two categories. They instruct us in some way how to love God and prioritize him or in another way how to love our neighbor as ourself. Um, for example, if, um, if you're looking at the Ten Commandments, the first four talk about how to love God. The second six talk about how to love our neighbor as ourselves. If you're looking at some of the, the, um, uh, the casuistic laws, we call case laws, Exodus 24 and 25, uh, when you're building a house, make sure you put a guardrail, a parapet around the top of the house. Why is that a spiritual law? Because you're taking care of your neighbor because it goes on to say, lest your neighbor go up on top of the house and fall off. You're caring for them. Every single law boils down into this is how you honor and love God, demonstrate your love for God, or how you demonstrate your love for others. If you want a shorthand approach to the Old Testament and an equal shorthand approach to sanctification, everything we do is how to love God and how to love others. It's pretty simple. By the way, you say, what about loving myself? <laughs> well, Ephesians 5 says, no one has to be taught that. You do that automatically. Um, and in fact, part of sanctification is learning to have less self-love and more love for others. The essence of the gospel is you deny your self and take up your cross and follow him. We can break that down into three points, two points with two subcategories. Loving God is pretty simple. All of our attention, focus, heart, soul, mind, and strength devoted to the Lord. But we also can break down loving others into two categories. Loving others as ourself means loving other believers in the way that the one another's of the New Testament instruct us to do. And it also means loving unbelievers in a way that shares the gospel, which is the greatest thing we can give them to give them satisfaction, hope uh, for this life and the next. So if you were to look at your, your sanctification objectively, what you're trying to do is shepherd in your heart. What we're trying to do as church leaders, as pastors, as elders, as teachers, is to shepherd hearts to love God, love others, which includes believers and unbelievers. It's shepherding three relationships, a relationship with God, a relationship with those who are saved, and a relationship with those who are unsaved. It's very simple. Now, there's a, a direct priority in that list, by the way. We're to love God above all else. That's the first commandment. But it might surprise some to know that our, our priority is to love other saints, the one another's of the, the body of Christ, first and foremost, even before loving and outreach to unbelievers. How do we know that? Remember in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, there's an interesting situation where um, Paul says, you're, you're invited over to an, an unbeliever's house for, for dinner and he serves you steak and you say, where did you get this meat? And he says, I got it down at the temple. It was sold behind the temple. It was offered to an idol, but they would offer them in these sacrifices. And then the, it was the meat market. They would sell them. And in that same night, your neighbor also invited a friend of yours who's a recent convert who had a very sensitive conscience. 
He says, now you're in a pickle. So do you, do you eat this meat and not offend the host? Because you know, it's, it's, there's no such thing as an idol. That's what Paul says in that context. It's really ridiculous. It's just meat. If it's good meat, if it's good steak, enjoy it. But if your friend who's a newer or a weaker conscience convert says, oh, I can't do this. You have, you're gonna have to offend one of these people. You know what Paul says? Offend the unbeliever. Take care of the believer because in doing that, you're actually not offending the unbeliever. You're showing how you love one another. Jesus said in in, uh, John 13, they, the unbelievers, will know that you love me when you love them. No, when you love who? One another. So there's an obvious priority on that. Three relationships, a relationship with God, a relationship with one another, the saints, Uh, those in the church and a relationship with unbelievers. Now, these are not uh, progressive. In other words, I'm gonna work for this year on loving God. Next year, I'm gonna work on loving others. And then year three, I might evangelize. These are all three relationships to develop in tandem at the same time with one another. So don't don't be fooled by thinking, well, I'm just gonna work on one of these three or two of these three. No, no, no. We're uh, compelled to do all three. That's the outline in relationships that God's given us for sanctification, for becoming holy, set aside, morally more pure than we, we have been. Let's look at that very briefly before we uh, have some discussion or question and answer. What does it mean to love God above all else? What does that really mean? Well, simply put, it means to prioritize him. That shows up in how we spend time with him, how we talk to him, how we think about him, how we meditate on him, whether the thought of God goes with us beyond our quiet time and beyond our church services. It's making him the center point, center focus of our lives. And as you know, the greatest demonstration or greatest revelation of God, rather, Hebrews chapter one, is the person of Christ. It's knowing Christ. It's learning him, Ephesians 4 says. It's putting Christ in the preeminent Colossians 1, uh, 18 place where he's got first place, not above everything, first place in everything. So everything we do, Christ occupies the first priority in the decisions that we make about that, that um, enterprise. Second, others, we, uh, we, we, we love believers. What does it mean to love believers? Well, Jesus told us that you lay down your life for your friends. The epistles instruct us that in order to love others, you exercise these one another's. I won't uh, soon forget teaching a membership class in our church. And if this is you, I won't mention you. Just be encouraged. Talking about the one another's. And I must have said it 10 times. And afterwards, someone, this, this, this dear soul came up and said, I'm sorry, what is a one another?" If you haven't been taught that, if you haven't looked at that or studied that, then we need to stop and say the Bible has, well, some are repeated, 36 or so with some repetition, one another's, love one another, prefer one another, defer to one another, serve one another, encourage one another, rebuke one another, correct one another. All of these things that we're supposed to do with each other. Now, it's, it's encouraging to me let me just give you a little aside as a, as a pastor. 
30 plus years, I don't want to admit that, and um, uh, talking about the same thing with our other elders and leaders. And you hear such, well, first of all, every pastor has what I would call the encouraging letter file and the discouraging letter file. Which one do you think is bigger? Like 10 to 1? People often love to tell you or to write you or to email you or, uh, and say, here's what's wrong with you and your church. And, and most of the time they're right, so I'm, I need to receive that. Um, fewer people take the time to encourage you. Now, this is not the solicitation this week. I'm gonna get these emails. You're a great guy, Rick. That's not what this is asking for. Unless you really want to and feel called by God to do that. But I understand that. As a, as a leader in the church, I am hearing multiple things. Can I just be blunt with you? In the last week, within six days, I had someone tell me from my from, from our body, listen, I, this is the most welcoming church I've ever been in. I, I've, I've never experienced a church that's so warm and welcoming and, and full of fellowship. And within six days of that, I had someone say, this is the coldest church I've ever attended. <sighs> so how do you, what's the takeaway? Maybe you can counsel me. What's the takeaway from that? Now, the answer, the answer is just, there's probably truth in, in, in both, which makes us always look in and say, let's excel still more in how we love one another. And let's also make sure that we're, we're aware that when people come in, we need to be cognizant. We need to reach out to them, looking for people who you don't know to just say, let's talk. Um, it's easy to come and sit and leave and realize that some people have come and sat and are leaving and have had no contact. So part of loving one another is being, you are the church to our visitors. You are the church to one another. You, you have no idea how people, how many people come in are sitting in this audience right now and desperately need someone to say, how are you doing? Not as a way of saying hello, but as a way of really caring for them. So be aware that you are ministers, administering the one another's in the body and being careful for that. Then unbelievers developing relationships with the lost. I, I, uh, how many people do you really know who are who are lost and going to hell that you have a passion and a burden for and not a judgment towards. Recently, my wife and I were uh, at a uh, certain restaurant and um, encountered someone who was obviously transgender uh, without much effort. This is a man who was dressed and um, obviously um, with makeup and everything trying to present himself as a woman, um, but not vocally or anything. And my immediate Southern response was not good. As we drove away, Kim and I said, you know what? I want to go back there. I want to know this person's name. I want to frequent this place and talk to them and have a place where I can talk to them about Christ. Now that sounds noble, 
until you realize that was not my first response. My first response was not good. What is your first response to unbelievers? You work with unbelievers. You, you interact with them. You, you have commerce with unbelievers. Do you realize that hell is real and forever and you have the life-changing, eternal, altering perspective on truth that could, that could change their life? Developing those relationships. So sanctification is really shepherding in each other and in your own heart a relationship with God a relationship with the saved in the church and a relationship with the unsaved. Now, you might be saying, well, where, where's holiness and moral decisions in that? That's number one. A relationship with God obviously helps you see who God is, think rightly about him, which helps us to think and see ourselves properly and rightly about ourselves, which makes us want to hate sin and fight sin and be holy. When you look at others and the one others, that helps you deny yourself. And we're dealing with the lost that helps us to be on mission. All of these relationships should drive us toward sanctifying ourselves, working, ourself, working um, in concert with God to see our change. Now, who changes you as a believer? You or God? Be careful. Be careful. Because the answer is letter C. All the above. Work out your salvation, Philippians chapter two. You do it. Who does that sound like? Sounds like you. The next phrase, for it is God who is at work within you. So you've heard these phrases before. There's monergism, which is all God, mono, monergism, which is justification and glorification. No one can do anything about glorifying themselves. Sanctification we call synergism. We work together with God. It's not let go and let God. Don't you wish sanctification was that easy as letting go and letting God? No, you have to put your shoulder to the plow and deny yourself and learn to hate sin and make moral decisions and say no to your flesh and, and on and on. I've heard about that for the last uh, three months actually. So with that, I wanted to open it up. Uh, anything that we've talked about in the last weeks uh, about sanctification um, or maybe anything else that's uh, church related and we can, we can kind of dialogue about. If you don't have questions, I have a lot. So questions that have arisen with, uh, with our study over the last few months on sanctification. It's just fun to watch you look at each other Got it down, got it wired. Anything that Bob talked about that was confusing, Myrl talked about that was confusing, Aaron, who is very confused, I'm just kidding. Anything you want to follow up, these guys are here and can answer any of those questions as well. Are you pursuing your sanctification? Is that a priority to you? Do you think often about it? Mr. Katzenberger. What a great question. How, how do you track your own sanctification? 
And I love how you said that. How do you make sure that your forward progression hasn't stopped? Someone told me when I was a young Christian, I think I was in high school, that sanctification is like riding a bike up a hill that has no brakes. And when you stop, you don't stop, you come back down the hill. Um, I think there's some truth to that. How can you measure that? Part of that is putting what Jonathan Edwards says uh, calls means in your life. In other words, the means of grace. What are the means of grace that God has said, put these in your life for that very, that, that, that very question? Um, uh, fellowship, discipleship, talking with your spouse, talking with your children, being accountable. You know what I've learned about my own heart? Being accountable is not really asking someone to hold you accountable as much as it is submitting yourself to someone in accountability. If I'm waiting on someone to ask me all the time, how are you doing with your wife? How are you doing with, with materialism, with, with lust, with coveting? With, if I'm waiting on that, that's not the way it's really supposed to work. I mean, we can't ask each other. It really should be uh, me going to someone and saying, listen, will you help me with this? So part of it, uh, Jake, is being self-aware, um, thinking about it often, asking people hard questions that know you best. How do you see me growing? Where do you think I need to grow? Um, on a personal side, journaling helps. You, personally, the, most, the best means that, that works in my own life is what we're gonna do in, in, in just a, a little bit is the Lord's table, is communion. That becomes a point every few weeks where I stop and in a deliberate, fearful, self-examining uh, self way, say, am I confessing the same sins and asking for grace and power for the same sins that I did two weeks ago? Often I am. And that's grieving, but that's also encouraging that you can see uh, spots of, of, of growth. The reason that we went to care groups every other week on Sunday night is the answer to your question. It's to have a, a group of people that you can get to know over time and begin to have these checkups in your life more regularly where people are asking. Which means, drum roll, done properly, care groups should be fairly uncomfortable. And that's okay. Someone who asks you hard questions loves your soul and cares about it. Now, let me, let me flip that for just a second and ask you, what have you found, to Jake's great question, what are the means of grace, what are the ways that God has put in your life that help you be aware and pursue your sanctification? Let's, let's minister to one another for a second here. What have you found really stimulates your growth and accountability and sanctification in your own life, in your own walk? This is not a rhetorical question. It's intended to be answered. Anyone? Chris.
Aaron is going for a microphone. I can tell he's one of the most aware people I know. We're gonna find one up here. Thanks. Uh, okay, prayer life, and we're gonna let, let Chris summarize that again. Look at how quick that guy can move. You just gave him your microphone too. You better be able to sing, Chris. This is good. Actually, you can, so. Uh, yeah, I was just saying that, you know, my prayer life, uh, just to summarize that, it's both a, something that's a means of grace that causes us to pursue sanctification, but it's also an indicator. If I find myself feeling like I'm having to pray the same thing over and over, uh, I'm, good. I, I don't have anything new, that, that's an indicator that, that I need to be pursuing my sanctification and submitting myself to God there. And then the other one is fellowship. Uh, same thing. It's a means of grace. I have to be persistent in, in pursuit of it or it won't happen. Okay, what does fellowship mean when you say that? Is that going downstairs having uh, red Kool-Aid and uh, stale crackers with the kids in fellowship hall? What, what does fellowship mean? Yeah, uh, the, the, the purposeful getting together with someone to hear what the Lord is doing in their life and be able to interact about what's going on in my life. Meaningful in a, interaction. Yeah, spiritual interaction in that regard based on truth. Um, and, and to do that, that could be done in the halls here, that could be done at a coffee shop, that can be done in passing, but you have to be intentional about it. And I know it's really easy to come here and even go other places or even meet up with people and talk about a lot of good things that make me feel good, but they never get to that level. So I have to be intentional about that. But the second part is, is that's an indicator. If I get together with people and I only have the same Psalm I share the last seven times I got together, I haven't been pursuing the Lord personally enough for him to be doing something, to, uh, pursuing the sanctification, um, and, and that should be an indication to me that I'm, I'm either relying on my friend to bring something every time we meet, uh, you know, and, and I need to be personally pursuing sanctification with the Lord better. Let me build off that. What, if, if, if Chris were to sit down with you, if I were to sit down with you, if someone who's sitting by you were to sit down with you, right now we took a break and, we, and you, you were asked this question. What are you most intentionally addressing in your spiritual walk with Christ, in your growth? What is the focus of your own effort to please God? Would that be a quick answer or would you have to think about it? And we, it's okay if it's not a quick answer, but we should be asking each other for the purpose of getting to that, that thought, having those meaningful, intentional conversations that we'll, we'll get there. Oh, I saw another hand. Gary. Aaron's getting all his steps in for the day. Women's or men's? I don't know. Participation in uh, men's or women's Bible studies. Uh, we have them available here, and it's been a tremendous uh, uh, means, and yet um, uh, I don't believe that many people actually take advantage of it to participate in. Yeah, taking advantage of what the church offers, and uh, some of you need to participate in some of these. Some of you, I understand, have, have uh, commitments that would not allow you to do that but there are other places to find this fellowship specifically in, in a care group, through membership, Sunday school hours, which will be changing in a few uh, weeks. So good, taking advantage of what's offered. 
How do you, Jake's question is the right one. How do you put disciplines and relationships in your life? What do you do to make sure you're growing in your faith? How are you self-regulating your sanctification before the Lord? Ryan. 10,000 steps during Sunday school, Aaron, you're gonna get them all. Is it on? Okay. Uh, one way I found helpful is reading books by uh, men like J.C. Ryle, uh, John Piper, and that can really kind of affirm, you know, like well, it could be encouraging in a sense of, I do think like this, I am living like this based on their examples and their teachings. And at the same time, you can see like, wow, I'm not thinking like this and I'm not living like this. So that's been one thing that's kind of helped me. Reading good books. I don't know, let me, let me just build on that. I have never met a growing, budding Christian whose life is in the trajectory of God and the one another's and evangelism. I've never met someone who is growing who was not also a reader. They just seem to go hand in glove. So. You know, other questions about sanctification, how you're uh, self-regulating and self-pursuing, self-managing. Unless you think that sounds awkward, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self Control, which means you have the steering wheel of your life in your hands, not someone else's hands. So that's self-control. Questions, sanctification. Myra. Chris mentioned fellowship, weights. <laughs> Chris mentioned fellowship as one of the important means for sanctification. How would you counsel somebody on two ends of the spectrum? One who says, look, I want to be engaged in one another's, but no one will reach out to me. Yeah. I come to this church, but no one is reaching out. On the other end, how would you counsel or disciple, encourage someone here that's saying, I'm reaching out to all kinds of people and nobody will, will reach back? Yeah, um... First of all, shame on any of us if we're reached out to and we don't respond in some way. Um, typically the answer to that is I don't have time. And let me remind you what your high school football coach told you, your parents told you, your algebra teacher told you, and they were all right. You have time for what's important to you. You have the same amount of time that everyone does. So everyone should have time for the priority of being with one another, talking with one another, and shepherding one another. That is going to mean, can I just be raw with you a second? That's going to mean you probably interacting with people with whom you have very little in common, that you might not even like socially, who irritate you, who bother you. And that's exactly the chess piece God has moved into your life to
to make you more like him who has to deal with all of us who are like that to him. So it's, it's purposefully engaging in relationships, not just for your own benefit, but how you can benefit these others and shepherd and help and, and care for them. The church, I think one of the things that in Matthew, excuse me, in John 13, when Jesus says, they will know you, you love me when you love each other. I think what makes that significant, especially in the early church, you have Jews and Gentiles. James chapter two, you have rich and poor. You have people who would not normally be interacting or liking each other doing so. I mean, if you have cool people liking cool people who dress in cool ways, the church isn't gonna say that's any different than a nightclub. But if you have people of different financial strata, racial strata, social strata, the cool and the uncool, the old and the young, the, the millennials and the gray hairs, if you have people interacting, the cool and, and, and the socially desirable and the socially awkward, when those people love each other and put each other in a priority position, then the world would look at our church and say something supernatural is happening there. Something that's not normal is happening there. And so that's on both sides. Don't just be attracted to people. This is terrible to say in the church that you like. God puts people that you would naturally be attracted to or like in your life for his glory and your change. That's a good thing. You know, I've had people say, well, and I'm not, some people, there's good reasons to change care groups, but I've had people say, you know, it's hard. There's no one I can relate to in that care group. So I want to go to another one. And there may be a reason for that. But my first response is, look at what God has done in your life. He has ordained that you can mix with people that are way outside your comfort zone. And that's good for his glory and it's good for our sanctification. So... Um, it's a good question, Myrl. Thanks. Other questions? I know you're all thinking, am I the person no one likes? That's not <laughs> you're the person that someone doesn't like. I can promise you that. Quit looking around. <laughs> it's also open to questions about discipleship or counseling. Uh, anything like that. By the way, um, I don't know who texted me this because it's coming from an iCloud account. One of the ways that the Lord facilitates sanctification is Psalm 119, verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. God intends for trials to sanctify us. And what I've learned in my own life is that affliction and trials show me areas I need to grow. And listen, friends, if you don't pass that test, God is faithful to have you repeat it. So learn as quickly as you can the first time through, right? I love that song. Whoever did that, it's not coming through. Um, But thank you for that. Discipleship, counseling. How do you disciple? Who do you disciple? How do you get discipled? How do you counsel? Who who counsels you? One of the, the, the... the most grieving parts of the way the church works today in my own life, in my own generation, is that we typically, 
think that counseling is to be deferred to the pastor or the elder or the expert. Remember, Romans 14 says, you're all able to counsel one another. You're able to shepherd and care for one another. And here's the, here's the, 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 the kicker. It doesn't mean that you have to be equipped to solve everyone's problem. It means that you are equipped to bear that burden with someone and to care for them and to seek solutions and answers to that together. Don't ever feel like, well, I'm not trained enough to to counsel. If you know the Lord, if you love your brother or sister, you, you can bear that burden, Galatians 6, 1 and 2, and care for them. Counseling doesn't mean you fix everything. Counseling and discipleship means you care enough to bear that burden with someone. So don't be... Don't just relegate this to, well, this, this is really bad. I need to send it to Ben Hyman. He, he can counsel that. Well, maybe. But give it your own swing first. So, Counseling, discipleship, sanctification. Aaron, you got a microphone. You can just add some things. So... Pastor Bob taught and talked about uh, giving scripture as a means, you know, in the midst of counseling, saying, here, work on this, study this, let's talk about this specific passage pertaining to this specific issue that you might be dealing with or wrestling with. What if, you know, you're talking with a friend and they mention something and you say, I, I don't really know necessarily what scriptures would pertain or how to find that. Do you have any resources or pointers for how then to uh, find those things? Or Yeah, sure. Um, what resource? Oh, I don't have to repeat the question. You just said it. Um, there is a little uh, guide that I was given in seminary, um, and I'm forgetting who wrote it. Um, uh, I think it's in Jay Adams' library, uh, Scriptural References for Counseling, which is a great, if someone finds that and, and can tell me the author, I'm happy to use it. It's, it's a wirebound thing that I've used for years. It's okay to tell someone, you know what? I don't know yet, but can we meet next week and I'm gonna do some study? You can call the pastors. You can find a resource. It's, it's okay to say, I don't know yet. And just figure it out. And if you don't have those resources, man, what a privilege, what, a, what an honor to say, you know, I don't really have the answers for that. I wanna study that this week and get back together with you. But can we together pray about this and ask God's help to show us. Bob, are you bringing resources up? Great. Um, so, uh, I mean, you, you do this also. How would you, what would you add to that? You counsel as much as I do. Someone says, I don't know the, I don't feel equipped and I don't know the answers. What would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think that you're mentioning the, the resources in the sense of the books and then the people and, um, I mean, even just a concordance in the back of the Bible and saying, okay, that's a starting point. And then what, what topics or passages does it bring up that I can then work uh, from there? Yeah, a, a simple concordance, owning a concordance is helpful, which is kind of what this is. This is the one I have. I didn't know there were two others. Um, a quick scripture reference for counseling uh, by John G. K-R-U-I-S. Chris? Um, it's a little wirebound thing. It's, it's, it's indexed by um, topics with scripture 
written, you don't even have to look it up. It's right there in there. There's also one scripture reference for counseling men, one for counseling youth. I can only assume that there's one for, for women. So um, these are super helpful. Uh, uh, to, they've been helpful to me over the years. So, yeah, Rick, one thing that Chris mentioned in his lesson that's important as well is not being afraid to say, I need to think about this. I need to yeah. pray about this. I need to discern what you're telling me and, and I'm gonna go home and be purposeful about thinking about this through the week and ask the Lord for wisdom, but even not being afraid to push pause in the discussion to do your own study, to seek counsel for your counsel. Um, it doesn't have to be a right away type of thing. No, do you guys understand that? You don't, you're not expected by God to be you know, omniscient. It's okay to say, I don't know I need to think about this. You and I, let's study this for the next five, seven days and get back together and see where we are. So, uh, but I care and I'm gonna pray for you in the moment. Listen, the goal is not always fixing one another. The goal is caring for one another. There are some situations you'll never fix. By God's design, you cannot fix how do you walk with someone who has terminal cancer and they're not healed? You will never fix that problem, but you can bear that burden and look at heart, attitudes of the heart with that person. So try to change your counseling model from the fixer to the bearer and the helper and the guide. It's okay to say, I don't know, but I care and let's pray. Now, you don't want to stay in that position. You want to, you want to grow and learn and add some things and, and study. So I, I really believe that many people back off from, from really getting involved because they think they're not equipped to help. I understand that. Let me just encourage you, you're more equipped than you think if you can simply care. A few more minutes. In the way back. So earlier it was mentioned that one of the things we can do is really get involved in Bible studies, the women's and women's ministries. What advice or encouragement would you have for somebody who is in a stage of life that is very busy and feels that they don't have time to be involved in those things? Um, there, there, there's two ways to answer that. Either I'm too busy to fit into the schedule of the things that are already going on. That, that could be completely true. Work schedule, uh, parenting schedule, whatever. But if the, if, if the question that this person asking is, I don't have time to do that because other things are more important, that, that's a bigger problem. And I, I think fellowship, Chris was talking about, interaction, exercising the one another, those are, those are commands, not suggestions. So if our lives are too busy to be involved in developing those three relationships, God, believers, and unbelievers, then we're busy with the wrong things. We need to start saying no to some things in order to say yes to these. You know, Jonathan Edwards, um, I wanna encourage you to read his 70 resolutions 
there are about seven or eight that all say fundamentally the same thing. He says, I wanna live in such a way now that I will not come to the end of my life and regret not having lived that way. Now, I bring that up because I had a recent conversation with someone who's, who's um, um, in the twilight years of their life who said this very insightful, said, if I had known how important spiritual disciplines were when I were younger, I would not have neglected, neglected them so much. Well, that sounds like an obvious thing. That's exactly what Edwards is saying. I wanna look at the end and not say, I, I, wanna, I will regret not having lived a certain way now. I wanna recognize that and live that, that way now. So there's two answers. If, if what's offered doesn't fit into your schedule, let's create something new. Let's find a, a group of women or men. And if, if for example, if you, if, you, if you work at 6 a.m. on Thursday, let's find another time when you and some other men can get together or, uh, the women's Bible studies and these kind of things. But if it's a point where you're saying, I don't have time to prioritize these things, then we need to look at where time is going. It's just like sitting down with someone with their checkbook or their calendar. What are you spending those two resources on and are they the right expenditures? So good question. Chris. You know, I was greatly affected in college by one couple, uh, and actually Jill in particular, with a, a woman who lived a godly life, um, but had children and was homeschooling and um, had a lot going on and was not free and available um, because of the, the demands at home and in ministry for her husband. She, she was really uh, juggling a lot of balls at, at once. And so she would invite people over during her busiest time of the day just to, to be with her at home. And they would talk about scripture and they would pray while they ironed and while they, they finished laundry or they did dishes. And, and uh, that was not only exemplary as, as, as just somebody in that position in life, but it was a good answer to my heart's question of, of I'm too busy. Well, the reality is you can bring people with you and even ask for that encouragement of what it is you're doing. And so it's a lesson I try to do is try not to do anything alone, you know. And so I think... That's an example, and she wasn't doing that because she was ultra godly, although I think she was a very godly person. She was doing that because she wanted the fellowship and she wouldn't get it otherwise. And um, that was an important lesson for us That's as a, a young couple. That's a great insight. Um, you know, I was affected by my own wife when the boys were younger and I was a college pastor and ladies wanted to get together, college gals wanted to get together with Kim and she would say, my evenings are full with kids, but I know you have dirty clothes, so why don't you bring your dirty clothes over on Tuesday? Uh, that's my laundry day. We're gonna wash clothes together and while we're doing that, we can talk about life. Same, same kind of thing. You know, doing as little as you can alone can help. If you're gonna go buy a pair of shoes, take somebody with you. If you're gonna go to the grocery store, you can take someone with you. And I don't wanna get off too much on this, but actually an older woman taking, a more mature woman taking a younger, less mature woman grocery shopping might actually be more beneficial than you know. I think that is Titus too. This is how you live life. This is how you make good grocery, good grocery decisions is a sanctifying uh, uh, decision. Everything falls under sanctification. So everything can become curriculum for prioritizing God. Is Jesus Lord of grocery shopping? Absolutely. Shoe shopping, absolutely. A bike ride, absolutely. So everything can be a classroom or discipleship. Isn't that what Deuteronomy 6 says? 
when you're rising, when you're sleeping, when you're walking, when you're sitting, every, every, you're on for discipleship all the time. And it's never turned off. Philip, on the way back. Uh, kind of a quick, like a two-parter question. How would you recommend that we think as people who might attend Bible studies or small groups or care groups versus those who lead? Like, what can both of those two do? And is there a difference as far as like cultivating an atmosphere where we're trying to mutually refine ourselves and open up and like be in a mutually like interdependent spiritual relationship, like the leaders and the people that show up? Like, how are we to both think about that? That's a good. Well, let me let me answer that first. The, the, in my own life, you cannot develop those kind of relationships only in the moment of pedagogy, curricular um, uh, transfer. Does that make sense? If, you're, if you have a Bible study or a Starbucks on Thursday, and, and you're, if that's the only time you're together, you're gonna struggle with the relational dimension that goes outside of that, unless those, are more than, those times are more than just transferring data and knowledge, and they really are caring for one another. So it's, some of that is what you're actually doing with the time. It's also the attitude of the discipler or the leader who looks at that as a, a mutual movement with one another toward Christ, not I'm, I've crossed the finish line looking back at you struggling with the marathon. Um, it, it's relationships. It's realizing that we, we need, need, that's the right word, one another it's not just one person needs the other. So I think the fundamental answer is developing relationships, not just um, um, relationships that love each other and care for each other, not just that are teacher-student relationships. Really caring. You're getting me off easy today. Going once, up, Chris, again. What's one of your favorite um, resources or books you talked about being a reader um, that spurs you on and encourages you to disciple or, um, or to, to be that, that encourager? That's an interesting question that I answered to someone uh, not long ago, and their answer surprised them. It kind of surprised me. So what's your favorite resource for discipleship? And without even thinking much about it, I defaulted to Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp, which is a parenting book. Because what he talks about in dealing with children is really, you're getting to the heart issues. So I, whether you're a parent or not, that, that book is, how many of you have read that book? That book is chock full of discipleship nuggets for how to transfer conviction and deal with heart issues, not just external behavior. So there, I could list you a lot of them, but actually that book was transformative in my own life, not just as a parent, but I remember reading that book, first time I read it, thinking, this, is, this applies to church too. This applies to my counseling. This applies to my discipleship. This applies to my staff meetings. This applies, this is, because he gets right after the issue of what are you really trying to do with another person, a child? You're trying to shepherd their heart, their values, their goals, their longings toward Christ. 
and not just toward behavior modification. So um, I don't know if that's a surprising answer, but I think that book, as much as any, has shaped my, um, my understanding of what discipleship aims for and, uh, and attempts. I would recommend that book whether you're a parent or not. I would recommend that book even if you've raised your children and they're gone because of the principles that it outlines and how it um, points us in the right direction toward sanctifying grace. Any other books that you guys would recommend on, on um, discipleship as a curriculum or as understanding how to do it? Disciplines of Godly Man by Kent Hughes really is a, a whole class curriculum on uh, becoming a godly man. Uh, there's, his wife has done one for women um, as well. Ten Ways to Improve Your Spiritual Life by Donna Whitney. Is that what it's called? Ten Ways? Ten Questions. Ten Questions, yes. Holiness uh, by J.C. Ryle. You just better keep your seatbelt on when you read that one. You will think he's read your, your journals. Even if you don't keep one, he's read your journals. He knows what you're, what you're thinking, so. Let me just say again, if you haven't read, it's, it's PDF, it's free online. If you have not read recently, and by recently I mean in the last year, uh, Thoughts for Young Men, I don't care if you're a young man, old man, young woman, old woman, a youth, college, that, that treatise, that is basically it was a big paper in some little sections. That's been very formative in my, quote unquote, getting my act together. And it's free online. You can just Google it and it'll come up. Thoughts for young men. Don't be put off by the title. It's, um, it's for anyone who would want to grow.